You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Do not engage uh, the threat actors yourself. You need to pull in a professional. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hello, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Curtis Minder from GroupSense. We're going to be talking about divergent ransomware trends. All right, Joe, we got some good stuff to share this week. But before we do, uh-huh. a listener has has written in to us okay. with a correction. Uh-oh. <laughs> for is, whom? For you or for me? Well, you'd think I'd be sound so happy about it if it were for me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I would not. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I know I've read this already, but uh, says, uh, why don't you go ahead? All right. This, <laughs> this listener writes in and says, hey, folks. I think it is the second time I've heard Joe referring to TIAA for Security Plus Certification instead of CompTIA. CompTIA. After listening to episode 154, I thought that I have to do something about this slip of the tongue. None of us would like to lead young and old minds to the website of a retirement services company. He is correct. To search for security certifications. Joe, what do you have to say for yourself, my friend? Mea culpa. Mea culpa. (laughs) I am very sorry. That is... 100% 100% correct. If I said TIAA or, or even CompTIAA, it is CompTIA or CompTIA. I don't know how they actually say yeah. it. I always say CompTIA over on CyberWire. Yeah, so that makes that sense. Mean it's right, that's how that's I always say it. Say it. But yeah. CompTIA, but it's that little thing in my head. I get it I get it mixed up with mm-hmm. the uh, what used to be called TIA-CREF, but is now just TIAA yep. uh, as a retirement organization. Uh, I don't know why I, I make these random associations and i apologize profusely (laughs) sorry yeah well you know it's easy to get the the older we get the more these things seem to get cross-wired in our brains yeah right it's weird it is it is all right well thanks to our listener uh ali who wrote in with that we do appreciate it we uh we don't mind being set straight when we get something wrong so thank you for taking the time so if you need to get your security plus go to comptia (laughs) right okay All right, let's dig into some stories here. Uh, I'm going to kick things off for for us. Uh, This is a story from the Washington Post uh, written by Jacqueline Pizer. It's titled, A Dark Side Coupon Group Scammed Stores Out of Millions, Police Say. They were just going through the ink. Now, uh, Joe, are you or any member of your family um, avid couponers? Uh, Not really. My wife will use coupons from time to time, but not like what you'd call an avid couponer. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I certainly I remember growing up going to the grocery store with my mom that mm-hmm. she was she would have a, a bunch of coupons in her purse that she would use when we went through the checkout. Sure. Of course, these days it's uh, it's all automated, and so you scan the barcodes on your coupons. Um, and uh, so, according to this story, there were some folks who were taking advantage of the automation there. Uh-huh. Um, they the, the the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office. From Houston, the Houston area, uh, they had found um, some fraudsters. They had over forty thousand dollars worth of items in their possession when the police raided them, and they were using coupons to buy all of this stuff. And hmm. what they were doing was, you know, how you go to a store and you check out, and most 
times today, particularly if you're doing like a self-checkout, it'll print out, there are two printers there, right? There's the receipt printer, and then there's often a coupon printer. Yeah. That'll spit out a bunch of coupons. I just leave those there. Because <laughs> they're for products I would never buy anyway. Okay. Just, well, you could say you're leaving them for the next guy. That's what I say. You're just that kind of guy. I'm, I'm nice. <laughs> you're generous. Right, right. You're selfless. That's right, uh, Dave. That's no what I more think selfless of. than me. When I think of Joe, I think, boy, that is one selfless guy. <laughs> right. um, so anyway, uh, evidently these scammers ha- got their hands on a bunch of those printers. Ah. And they were just generating these coupons and automatic and spitting them out and then going to use them to buy things, either getting deep discounts on things so that they could then later sell the stuff online, you know, still sell it still at a discount to the people who are buying it, but still, still make a profit. Still make a profit. Right. Or even getting stuff for free. Uh-huh. Um, cause there are coupons out there that'll allow you to do things for free. In sure. fact, I remember one time I had a product, you remember back, uh, this is a while back. Um, I think the folks who make the scrubbing bubbles, you know, those guys, yes. they had a little, like a little thing you could hang off your shower and it would automatically spray your shower with soap. I remember that. Yeah. So I had one of those and I was, it was very, cause I love gadgets. Right. <laughs> so this was, you mean I could put a gadget in my shower and it'll help keep it clean? Sign me up. How, how effective was it? It was, it was, you know, kind of like uh, the way I think about a Roomba vacuum cleaner, which is that the main thing that it does is it lengthens the time between which you have to do a proper cleaning. Ah, right. It okay. doesn't do a great job, but it helps hold off your need to do a great job. Right. And that's what this did. Okay. So help building up soap scum and stuff. So anyway, I bought one of those things. They're probably about 20 bucks um, and it stopped working almost right away. <laughs> so I sent a note to the manufacturer and I said, you know, do you want me to send this back to you? They said, no, 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 we'll we'll just mail you a coupon. So they mailed me a coupon and sure enough, this coupon came in the mail and it was for a free one of those things. Huh. And it, I think it was the most valuable coupon I'd ever had. So right. I went to the store with this coupon, uh, got this $20 thing off the shelf, went and checked out, handed it to the checkout person. They they, they sort of gave, gave it a look, looked at me, looked at it, and they're like, free? <laughs> That's what the coupon says. Right. Sure enough, got the thing for free. So uh, the other thing I think it's worth noting is that with um, many of these coupons, you scan them in and um, the coupon has all sorts of information in the barcode about how the coupon's supposed to work, what you have to buy in order to make the coupon eligible, um, how much the coupon is worth, and and so on. But uh, the actual checking for the validity of the coupon isn't always done instantaneously. And that's what these people were taking advantage of. They were Ah. making these fake coupons with authentic barcodes, barcodes that follow the standards for the barcode, but were giving much greater discounts than they should have been able to get. Huh. So uh, anyway, these folks had these, uh, these printers and they were just pumping out these coupons and then going and buying stuff. The, the police got a tip off from some of the stores that were seeing these fake coupons come in. They said uh, folks at Target and Kroger and Walmart were noticing an uptick in fraudulent discounts. And so they contacted the police and uh, the police were able to track these folks down. Uh, they said one suspect had managed to buy $200,000 worth of items in one year using the fake coupons. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's just another one of those things where I think these people were probably brought down by their greed. Right. Right. Because right. if 
if you went every now and then and used, you know, generated a spit out a fake coupon to get, I don't know, half off your marshmallows or something, <laughs> chances are <laughs> nobody would track you down. You would you would get away with that. But right. when you're going through tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of merchandise, you're gonna draw attention to yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I don't know that there's uh, much to be done about this in terms of our listeners, unless you're a retailer, uh, to be on the lookout for this sort of thing, that there are the fake coupon folks out there. I, I thought it was interesting just from the point of view that I'd never really considered how what, what makes up a, a, a coupon barcode. And, and as you would expect, there's lots of information online about what exactly is in a coupon barcode. This never even occurred to me. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that there are probably tools out there because there are tools out there for everything to auto-generate these, you know. I'm sure there are. <laughs> right? So, uh, anyway, uh, good for law enforcement to track these folks down. Uh, shame that these stores got hit by this sort of thing. But uh, nice to see that the bad guys got hauled in in this case. All right. That is my story this week. What do you have for us, Joe? Dave, my story comes from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. You and I were talking before the uh, show. Have you been? You've been to, to Wyoming, I believe so. And yes, I'm pretty I've sure never I been. have. Mm-hmm. And neither had the author of this story, Alexander Schur. And he was looking online at Craigslist for uh, an apartment online. And he, as soon as he saw one, he saw one that was almost too good to be true. Hmm. So he sent an email to the Craigslist uh, person and said. I'm interested in this apartment. The guy, of course, sends him back a bunch of uh, a bunch of application stuff, but he gets kind of suspicious, hmm. right? So Alex, I'm going to call him Alex. Okay. Uh, Alex then goes, well, this doesn't seem right. And he actually makes a phone call to the company that manages this condo complex and says, oh, yes. He hears, oh, yes, that is a, a scam. Hmm. So what's happening here, Dave, is right now uh, the housing market is really hot. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Interest rates are low. Yep. Prices are going up because inventory is also low. Yep. Uh, that puts pressure on the rental market as well, right? Right. Uh, and these scammers are going to try to cash in on it. Hmm. So Alex did a little bit of poking around. He called the the police department and said that in in Jackson Hole or in Jackson and said they said that they've had a bunch of calls like this, 16 fake Craig, Craigslist-related scam calls, hmm. and 11 of them were for housing. So the vast majority are for housing. Uh, he found one ad that was uh, of a condo that wasn't even in that area. It hmm. was pictures of another condo we found through a Google image search in, uh, I think, California, right? Wow. And he actually reached out to the owner of that condo, and and he said, yeah, I've been trying to stop them from posting pictures of my condo forever. I've gone so far as to say, I'm going to call the police. And they say, go ahead. Wow. They don't really care. Huh. Um, well, Alex actually went one step further and he contacted the person who sent him the original request. And he says, uh, I'm a journalist and I'm going to do a story on it. And the guy said, uh, okay. He goes, I'd like to interview you. And the guy says, well, uh, give me a hundred bucks and I'll interview. I'll let you interview me. <laughs> <laughs> right? Staying true to form. Right. Exactly. Not missing an opportunity. And yeah. Alex goes, no, I'm not going to pay you a hundred bucks, but I am going to report on this. So, you either have the opportunity to talk to me now or not. And the guy said, fine, I'll talk to you. Okay. Right? And Alex wound up talking to this guy. He is a, a guy named Matthew. Uh-huh. Um, 
uh, who wouldn't give his last name. He is 34 years old. He lives in Lagos, Nigeria. He has young children. uh, And outside of scamming, he likes talking to women and watching a lot of movies. Long long walks on the beach. Long walks on the beach. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Matthew said that he cannot find a job in Nigeria that pays half as much as the $7,500 a month he makes running scams for people around the United States. Wow. And he's been doing this for 10 years. Wow. Okay. Uh, that is, Dave, $90,000 a year. If that's if what Matthew was saying is correct, he makes $90,000 a year scamming people out of Nigeria. Yeah, that's a living. That's, that's a living here in the United States, and it's higher than all the median incomes of all the countries. But in Nigeria, it's the median income is is like $2,600 a year. Wow. So he is probably one of the wealthiest men in Nigeria. Right, right, right. right. So what, what's the scam here? Walk, walk me through what, how, how does, how does this fellow from Nigeria uh, get the money from somebody? What, what's the, what's the deal? Well, the way with this scam, it works with a, uh, with it's, it's a rental scam, right? right? So I put, I put a picture, let's say I'm the scammer, yeah. right? I put a picture up on Facebook of some other pictures I found on Google or something, or maybe even from other ads. I, maybe I go to to uh, San Francisco Craigslist, mm-hmm. right? And I just download all the uh, the entire page, the copy and everything, right? The words and the pictures, and then I go make my own posting, like on uh, uh, Howard County, Maryland, right? At Craigslist, and say I've got this condo for rent. You. Dave, you're the mark, so you say, hey, Joe, I'm interested in running your condo. I go, okay, here's all the forms to fill out. I uh, say, well, let me get have one day to run the background check and make sure you're okay. And surprise, surprise, of course, you're okay, right? Mm. So now all you have to do is mail me a deposit or send me a deposit via bank transfer or Venmo or something or Cash App, right? and you're in the apartment. And I'll send you some keys. Of course, the keys never arrive. The, the apartment isn't real, but that's how I make my money. Wow. Hmm. I, well, do, and any uh, any insights on how the money is flowing? How they're laundering the money to to get that through the system? I don't know how they're laundering the money. They may be turning it into some cryptocurrency or something and, and laundering it that way, or they may just there may not be money laundering requirements like this in Nigeria. They may just have money that they can just pull out as cash and then spend. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In the United States, we have lots of legal requirements that we need to de- demonstrate where our income comes from. Right. right? The other issue is that we have to claim the income or we face the IR of the IRS, right? Yeah. So we, we have to have demonstrate that we have this, this income and be able to say where it came from. You may not have that requirement in other countries. Hmm. So let's say I'm out apartment shopping. I mean, the thing, the thing, the, the person who I can see this being particularly difficult for is the person who's moving from out of town. Correct. And that's exactly the the situation that Alex was having. Yeah. So they're looking for something. They are not familiar with the area. Right. I mean, if you and I were just looking for a different apartment across town. Right. Right. We uh, could go see it. We could go see it or or even we could, you know, take look at the picture and say, that doesn't look like anything around here. Right. (laughs) We don't have that kind of architecture here or whatever. Uh, but if you're if you're not from around here, then I could I could easily see somebody falling for this. Yeah, especially if you're trying to have an apartment ready when you show up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can absolutely see how this works. Uh, your best bet for this: call a realtor mm-hmm. in the area. Um, you know, ask around on uh, on Reddit. I see a lot of people doing this on on the Reddit for for our hometown. Yeah, right? they they get on there and go, "I'm looking for an apartment." And I'm seeing a lot of things that are pretty expensive. Uh, has anybody been to these these apartment places? Ask around. Right. 
there are plenty of communities out there willing to share the the information about their communities. The other thing is, I would say, is is talk to a realtor because you know, having been a realtor early on in my life, uh, one of the ways that I made money is I would rent people apartments or houses, hmm, real uh, ones. Yep, real ones. No, of course, <laughs> that's right. Um, and and you don't have to pay the realtor either. Usually right. the realtor is paid by the by the owner of the house. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, they they don't have any motivation to scam you. Their motivation is to get you into a house mm-hmm. or into an apartment. And they know the market. And they know the market. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting one. It uh, is. All right. Well, we of course we will have links to both of our stories in the show notes. So do check those out. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Craig who writes, during our clean-out of the spam filter, sounds like he's cleaning his pool. <laughs> <laughs> right. We stumbled across this gem. At first, it did seem real. We have a colleague who at times can be overbearing, but as with most things caught, it had a compressed file, which was an absolute no-no. And the fact that the email lacks detail tipped us off by the end. Uh, the subject of this email was re-unprofessional behavior. And uh, Dave, you want to take it? Sure. It goes like this. Good day. I am really unhappy with the kind of treatment I got from your colleague when I made a price inquiry. He was very rude to me, and that is a wrong way to treat customers coming to make inquirers. I felt so bad, and it made me think if I did the wrong to patronize your company. I left the office angry, but later that day, I spoke with a partner that happens to be your old customer who sent me your email and said, you can attend to my inquiry. I can't continue with my inquiry if this is not resolved first. See attached product list, and I hope you can resolve this or take it to your superior. Best regards. Right. So I almost, I can guarantee you that attachment was malicious. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. This is... uh, This is just someone trying to gain access. This is a good catch, uh, Mm -hmm. Craig. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, vague enough that uh, (laughs) what I love about this from from our listeners, like, uh, yeah, it's plausible. We got somebody we work with who could. uh, This (laughs) could totally. This could. This could totally be Bob. Right. (laughs) There's always that. that. Yeah, that it's one, Joe. That's that they, one colleague. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's what my coworkers say. <laughs> right, right. So the, the old saying that if uh, everywhere you work, there's one jerk, maybe it's you. Right, you know? yep. <laughs> All right. Well, our thanks to our listener, Craig, for sending that in to us. We would love to hear from you. If you have a catch of the day for us, you can send it to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Curtis Minder from Group Sense. He's been on our show before. Yes, yeah. And our conversation this time was about uh, three divergent ransomware trends that he and his colleagues have been tracking. Here's my conversation with Curtis Minder. On the threat actor side, Dave, it's it's chaos. As you've seen in the news and the media, we've seen higher and higher profile cases. Uh, those are the ones that we know about. There's a lot that we don't. Um, we've also seen, because of those high-profile cases, the threat actors changing tactics, changing names, changing brands. <laughs> so there's a lot mm-hmm. going on. Uh, even in the last month, we've seen quite a bit of change in the activity level and and also the tactics that the threat actors are using. 
Well, there's some specific things that you all are tracking here. Let's go through them one by one. What's the first thing that's on your radar? We're obviously intimately involved in the actual ransomware cases themselves. So we're we're doing a lot of the negotiations on behalf of the victims. So we're tracking you know, the, the metrics associated with those negotiations, which groups are, are most prolific, uh, which groups are using which malware components successfully, also what amounts are being asked for and or paid in, in, in those exact no- negotiations. But on top of that, we're actually tracking the individual threat actors themselves uh, and their sort of their, their track record and history in the space. Now, what about some of these groups starting to work together to sort of join join forces as cartels, if you will? What, where are we seeing that trend? Well, it, it's a little bit cloudy because, like I said, these guys, there's a lot of anonymity attached to these groups. And they, you know, they change their brands and, and names <laughs> uh, relatively often and when it suits them. Uh, but this is not new, the, 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 the collaboration between the groups. And you've probably heard of ransomware as a service. Uh, this has become more and more common where, you know, the threat actors who are actually perpetrating the the attack or the hack of the network are then just licensing the ransomware uh, capability platform and, and, and communication mechanism from another party. Um, and so this has actually become more prolific. And the problem that's causing on the response side is um, you don't exactly know who you're negotiating with uh, because they're <laughs> they're literally licensing the brand of another uh, another perpetrator. Hmm. So opening up my own ransomware version of the the, the corner McDonald's. <laughs> Basically, it's it's very similar to a business franchise. Yes. Yeah. Now the barrier of entry has become much lower as well, right? Because of these, as you say, these these uh, ransomware as a service offerings. It doesn't take a whole lot of technical expertise to get started in this business if it's something you want to pursue. Yeah, and it, it's not—it's not even simplified just at the the ransomware technology stack side. It's also simplified at the network penetration side. So, you know, first and foremost, a, a lot of the attacks that are successful against enterprises that end up being ransomware incidents are not sophisticated to begin with. Uh, that you know, a lot of these attacks are basic cyber hygiene mistakes. Um, on top of that, you have what we call initial access brokers, and these are opportunistic attackers who are going out and finding these open holes in, in networks. And they, instead of actually perpetrating the attack themselves, they just sell that access back to someone who wants to then license the ransomware capability and go through with the attack. So there's a whole marketplace. As a, as a would-be uh, threat actor, you could buy the network access rather than, than hack it yourself and then license the capability to deploy ransomware on that network uh, rather than doing that yourself. And it, so effectively, with, with a small amount of money, it takes some investment, and in, typically in digital currency, you could buy the entire capability stack of deploying ransomware uh, without any expertise at all. Hmm. Now, is there a distinction between the more sophisticated actors who are you know, doing their homework and and targeting organizations intentionally and more of the kind of, you know, smash and grab, just going to, you know, spray and pray, uh, try to hit as many folks as possible. Is there, in terms of defenses, is, is there a distinction there or is that a distinction without a difference? Uh, well, in, in terms of defenses, not necessarily. But, you know, the, the types of attack vectors are very similar. 
The only mm-hmm. caveat I'll, I'll I'll throw in there is for what we call the big game hunters or the the threat actors that are targeting very specific organizations. You know, they're they're looking for a big payout, so they will invest more time and potentially craft and or buy uh, stronger attack capabilities. But you know, ninety nine percent of the attacks are are pretty much. Uh, the same attack vectors that you know across across the board. The difference, though, the real differentiator is in how those threat actors negotiate on the back end. The individual actors and or sort of fly by night license uh, ransomware as a service uh, occasionally, you know, opportunistically. Those folks are not operating. Uh, let's say in good faith, or, or they're 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 not worried about their brand. Where uh, a ransomware group like R Evil or Conti that that has a brand, they are cognizant of the outcome, right? So they're 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 more worried about that they're concerned about making sure they honor the ransom so that other people in the future pay the ransom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happened? What we've noticed, and this has actually gotten quite worse in the last couple months, is uh, these smaller operators that are just licensing the platforms are less likely to operate in good faith like or honor the ransom so they might they might actually give give you partial key like they might encrypt systems with multiple keys and only give you one when you've negotiated for three and then charge you for the second one and the third one we like to call those tag alongs so they they we've seen that happen in the last couple of months more and more often and it is with these smaller actors i see now, one of the things you're, you're tracking are what you describe as crypto brokers, these folks who manage the crypto payments. Can you describe that to us? What's going on here? Uh, so we're, I wouldn't use the word tracking. We, we have relationships with and are, are um, well acquainted with the brokers that basically take you know, the, the, the standard currency. In this case, a lot of times it's U.S. dollars and convert that into cryptocurrency uh, for the purposes of doing a a, a, a cryptocurrency transaction, um, in this case, that transaction is is often paying uh, you know a threat actor or, or a ransom payment. There's there are uh, specific operational and financial security measures that you have to take, um, or you, obviously you don't have to, but it is advised that you take <laughs> um, <laughs> doing a transaction like this. And so you know we we've worked with a number of brokers that that help us facilitate those processes. Um, and and the, I can't go through those specifically, but the idea is, you know, the threat actor when you're when you're actually making the payment um, cannot easily trace back to you know the victim's bank. Mm. That's yeah. So there's a whole there's a whole you know infrastructure there that that helps protect um, the, the 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 reverse tracing of the transaction. Interesting. Yeah. But you make the point, though, that, that they they may have some, uh, I don't know, perverse incentives here. Like they, you know, the, the, the way that they make their money, the commissions that they make influences how they go about things and recommendations they may make. Yeah, certainly the, 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 their economic model is taken into account when, we, when we're choosing a partner for, for a transaction like this. <laughs> um, and we have seen where, in, in some cases, where the crypto brokers are – and actually, it, we just saw one of these in Australia, where the crypto broker was working with the threat actors, and and so we these are type these is the type the type of due diligence that we will do to to determine whether it's safe to work with a particular broker or not is mm. if they are engaged in in fraud in any way or um, co- coercion with the threat actor 
and or any other fraud, fraudulent campaign. And we do this uh, both b- by using our intelligence capabilities, which are native to what we do as a company, but also we partner with companies like CypherTrace that will help us basically measure and, and track the crypto transactions that happen. Um, so we can see who is transacting with whom and how often and that sort of thing. So it's really a, uh, knowing who you're doing business with. As best you can, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Where do you suppose we're headed? I mean, what what are the trend lines? Are we are we on a trajectory where you know this can't continue? There, there's going to have to be some sort of disruption here. Yeah, I think I think uh, I hope that we're getting to a point where we can start curbing this. And there are several ways to do that. There's a technology approach, which you know we've got you know, myriad companies trying to solve this. How do we protect companies better from ransomware? There's uh there's there's a sort of a policy and best practices approach, which by the way, is is highly effective. And and what I mean by that is uh just following some basic security hygiene on the front end will will make will basically remove a company from being the low-hanging fruit. Um so that that's probably one of the cheapest ways <laughs> to address mm-hmm. this. And then the third way is is uh, legislation and, and government uh, support, and I th- that's something like, for example, the ransomware task force is is making recommendations around how can the government uh, help the victims that are that are in these scenarios without facilitating a ransom payment. And so mm-hmm. the the net outcome from this would be that the threat actors no longer get paid for what they do. Now, what I will what I'll say, add to that is they will find another angle. <laughs> and we're already right. seeing, you know, threat actors pivoting off of pure ransomware and creating, uh, for example, Marketo created a, uh, by the way, this is not the same as the marketing company Marketo. There is a threat actor group called Marketo, which is a little bit confusing and unfair uh, to the marketing company. <laughs> sure, <laughs> the, threat <right>. actor, <laughs> the threat actor group Marketo, for example, has already pivoted to just selling stolen data in packages rather than doing the ransomware deployment themselves. So they just mm. exfiltrate data and then they've got a, a stolen data marketplace that they've created. So we, we're seeing them get creative about uh, changing their approach. Um, so that's, that's, we're going to see that regardless of, of what we do on the specific to the ransomware problem. I see. What are your words of wisdom? And, and I realize this is a little bit like asking a barber if I need a haircut. But um, you know, what what are your words of wisdom in terms of folks negotiating with the the folks who are holding them for ransom? Is there have we reached the point where it is not in your best interest to try to handle this yourself? Yeah, I think we reached that point a, a long time ago. And and so my my advice to to companies and or, and or victims of ransomware would be. Do not engage uh, the threat actors yourself. You you need to to pull in a professional. The, the second part of that I'll say is, don't find that professional by googling "help me with ransomware" because there are a lot of scammers out there that will claim to have expertise and or capabilities, like for example, the ability to decrypt your files that they don't actually have, and uh, they'll just waste your money. What you what you mm. want to do is call uh, external legal counsel that specializes in breach response. Or if you have an incident response firm that you work with, or you have cyber insurance, those three angles are the best angles to find a professional to help you with the response. When you respond uh, on your own and then engage a third party to help, it is really difficult to unwind, uh, a, you know, a, a negotiation in process. Um, that's my advice. 
I suspect too. I mean, is it fair to say that this is one of those things, this is a conversation that you need to have with your leadership team before you need to have it so that when you're in the heat of the moment, you've already got a plan in place? Absolutely. And and I would say for the larger companies that have incident response plans in place, that's good. Uh, but the incident response plans that we have experienced often do not address ransomware incidents specifically, and they should. Um, those scenarios are quite different, and they involve different business processes, different decision makers, and, and things like this. So my advice would be, yes, ransomware preparedness is, uh, you know, an ounce of prevention, right? <laughs> Doing right, something right. on the front end uh, to get ready for an incident will, will help you a ton uh, when it does occur. All right, Joe, what do you think? I'm very happy to hear Curtis on the show again. I always yeah. love having him on. Mm -hmm. uh, ransomware has really evolved since we first started hearing about it. Mm. Uh, and it's even evolved more recently with the, uh, the, the SCADA ransomware and the industrial control systems we've seen them go after. Um, ransomware as a service is almost like a franchising model. Mm. Uh, and we see these guys looking for clients, I guess, front end, front ends for their business. Yeah. And like a McDonald's, like McDonald's, which of course everybody knows is a legitimate franchise, a very profitable one at that. Yeah. Uh, they'll help you get set up. Right. 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 What's interesting, one of the things that's interesting about what he said is that the attacks are all not all that sophisticated. Hmm. They're the really basic attacks. They're not breaking into things to, to, to uh, you know, they're not using zero-day exploits to get into these places. They're just using phishing attacks. Right. Right? Uh, and what I, one of the things I think is interesting is, is initial access brokers, right? These are guys that have access to things, and then they start, uh, they, they go out and sell that. You and I were talking beforehand uh, about a, a Facebook uh, account of somebody I know mm. who I recently helped them recover it because somebody had changed the password on the on the account. Right. And right. this person did not remember changing their password. Uh, and it was fairly recently too. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think I, my suspicion is that that was an access broker or, uh, you know, initial access broker. So somebody broke into that account and then would sell that access to someone else. Right. Change yeah. the password and lock this person out of their account. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, we were able to recover the password without much, uh, without any human involvement from Facebook. They have mm. a good password recovery system. Mm. Um, I love it that Curtis calls some of these guys fly by night. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I thought that was funny. That made me chuckle a little, a little bit. Because if you think about it, some of these some of these operators are not fly-by-night operators. They're long-term criminal operators, like our evil, right? Yeah. They are, um, they've been around for a while. Yeah, there is a, as you say, this has evolved and there's growing sophistication with these organizations. Right. And that, that speaks to their brand management. These guys actually, some of these guys actually care about their brand. They're not franchising out their name to everybody. Mm -hmm. They're saying, when you're talking to us, you're talking to the real people. Right. Right. He was talking about, uh, the, uh, the brokers that he uses, the crypto brokers that are essentially escrow agents. Right. Mm. This is, I mean, this is looking more and more like legitimate business all the time. <laughs> isn't it? It is. It's yes. Fascinating to me. It is. <laughs> yeah. Um, if things get very hard for these ransomware actors, they will change to a new threat model. That is one of the key takeaways from this. Uh, the, these guys are really, really, really enjoying the amount of money they're making. And when people start making a lot of money and people start acquiring a lot of money, they like to keep it that way. Mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and ransomware actors are no different. So they're going to switch up to something equally as as profitable. And and Curtis was talking about some people who just don't even bother with encrypting your data anymore. Now they just sell it. 
Right. Um, yeah. That, that's their business model. Mm-hmm. That's obviously gotten uh, profitable enough for them to do it. Yeah. Um, one of the things Curtis said that I, I could not agree with more is call a professional as early in the process as you can when you're dealing with a ransomware gang. One of the big benefits that gets you is it gets you your emotional detachment from the situation. Mm. Uh, you do not want to be the small to medium business guy uh, on an email conversation with the uh, the ransomware actor, malicious actor who has encrypted all of your files. Right, right. Because that, that person does this all day, every day. Right. Yeah. And this is a new situation for you. Mm-hmm. Get somebody in your corner who also does this all day, every day. Right. Uh, right. And that is great advice. I couldn't agree more with Curtis on that. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Curtis Minder for joining us uh, once again. Always a pleasure to have him on the show. Uh, we want to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.